Global Sonic Frequencies brought to you by Ultrasounds with DJ E-Love. on your dial. And we have special guest coming up momentarily on the line, Anat Baniel, founder of the Anat Baniel Method. And Anat is the author of two highly acclaimed books, Move Into Life, Neuro Movement, For Lifelong Vitality, and Kids Beyond Limits. She was trained as a clinical psychologist, a dancer, and was a close professional associate of Dr. Moishe Feldenkrais for over a decade. And Anat was born in Israel to a scientist father and a poet and garden architect mother. She went to graduate school and Tel Aviv University to become a clinical psychologist. And at the same time, she pursued her passion for dance. She worked as a psychologist for the Israeli army for a number of years. And while in graduate school, she began studying with Dr. Feldenkrais. After graduating from his training program, she began working full-time as a teacher in his method. And while living still in uh, Israel, Anat began teaching the work of the work in the Jerusalem Academy of Music and Dance taught for Dr. Feldenkrais in his Tel Aviv Institute and in his professional training and developed her own practice. And in 1982, Anat moved to New York City where she quickly developed a practice working with babies and young children, with musicians, with athletes and with adults suffering back pain, injuries, and she began teaching seminars and professional training programs worldwide. She has founded her own training organization in 1986 and has been involved in training over 1,000 practitioners in her career. She's also worked with the Tanglewood Music Center and she's worked and taught a program for the San Francisco Symphony musicians beginning in 1994 for over six years. And we are blessed to have Anat on the phone with us. Greetings and welcome to the Ultrasound Show. Thank you. Happy to be with you, Elu. Thank you. Thank you. Likewise, I'm so feeling so excited about our talk tonight. I feel like many, many people will resonate with uh, your method and what we have to say. And this book, Move Into Life, I must say is amazing. I'm about halfway through it. And it really, really has opened my eyes. I've actually been doing some of the exercises in your book and had just the lights go off. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about this book because it has so many amazing uh, sections to it and a lot of information. So in the beginning, maybe we can talk a little bit about what is your method and explain to people about the method itself. Okay. Um, the, 
I'll start by saying that in neuroplasticity or uh, the idea that the brain can change itself that, throughout life, um, uh, it, we, we, it's, been, it's, it's understood today that the brain can change more than we ever realized. And actually for many, many years, uh, it was believed that past a relatively young age, the only, you know, the thing won't change except through deterioration, right? Loss of capabilities as we age. And my work, what I call neural movement, is a powerful way to make that happen. That means create positive brain change. The, mo- the, the method, uh, uh, one uh, central part of the method is movement but not as exercise per se, which is also a very good thing to do, but utilizing movement together with the nine essentials, what I call the nine essentials, uh, which are all conditions, by the way, by now, all supported by current neuroscience research, those nine essentials combined with movement are uh, conditions where that really wake up the, their, the brain. It's like sort of the lights go on, they wake up the brain to resume creating lots of new connections and new, new neural networks that allow us literally new possibilities in the area of movement, you know, physical, in the area of thinking, cognition, in the area of emotion, and, uh, and can definitely lead to more opening for spiritual, you know, growth. Would you say that if a person has a problem with a physical aspect, would that actually be a problem in the brain? Always. I mean, the, 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 the brain and the periphery, the body, what we call the body or physical aspect, are one integrated system. And I think maybe one of the easier ways to understand it is to look at the, evol- the personal evolution of each human being and each body-brain person or body-mind, whatever you want to call it. The, at birth, we are born with a, roughly 22% of the size of the brain we're going to have as young adults. That means about 22% of the connections uh, that we will have and it's through a lot, a lot, you know, hundreds of thousands of experiences, new ones, repeated ones, all of them, by the way, driven with movement. Without movement, there's no delivery at all. I mean, movement is life. I mean, you can't take movement away. You know, I'm talking to you now, I'm expressing ideas, and some of them are abstract, some of them might be novel to the listener, but I wouldn't be able to do it if my brain didn't know how to organize the movements of my tongue and mouth and jaw and breath and and wouldn't be know how to organize the movement of my thoughts. I mean, thoughts are a form of movement. So movement is always there. And through thousands of experiences, the brain lets, literally gets formed, or we can even think of it as apprenticeship. So when a baby doesn't know how to use their arm, the arm is moving, and it's very important. It has lots of random movement and reflex movement, but the child can't intentionally, for example, reach for a toy and hold it. Uh, As the child has more and more experiences with 
movement of the arm and the back and the pelvis and the relationship between the different parts of the body, the, the uh, brain literally what's called gets mapped. Uh, the body gets mapped into the brain. In other words, there are connections, new connections, new configurations of connections that are formed between certain areas of the brain that's associated with that area that we are moving. can be your thumb, can be your forearm, can be your leg, can be your lower back, can be your pelvis. Every part of our body literally needs to get mapped into the brain. And the degree to which we went through a process of that, or this kind of process in a more a, a, a complete way, that's the degree to which the mapping will be fuller. And where my work comes in is looking to generate solutions. Um, let's say if somebody has back pain, like you said, or somebody has an issue, or a, a musician wants to be able to master a certain passage that they're playing better or get rid of pain, or a dancer or an athlete that wants to achieve more, or a regular person that would like to be able to walk easier or breathe better or sleep better. It's all, I find that the opportunity lies in resuming the process of growth, literal growth, literal mapping of the self, the movement with the thinking and, and the feelings, new connections in the brain, literally filling in missing connections or in, incomplete maps. You know, I just would like to say that briefly, you know, working with people, one day I had this image of the brain functionally, not in terms of the structure, but functionally being a bit like Swiss cheese. And, you know, people come to me and they say, oh, whatever, they desire or complain. And I look at it from the point of view, where have they not matured? Where have they not had a chance to learn? Where if they had more, more experiences, more connections, more freedom to experiment, where is it that will give them the best chance to invent more of themselves and find new ways that are what, more what they're looking for? And over and over again, what I find for myself, but also for people I work with, is that when we go through this process, we don't know what it's going to look like because it's not there yet. But very often the outcomes far exceed the, the, what we set out to accomplish. So that's what my work is about. It's about helping people literally evolve and literally filling the gaps in their, you know, in the relationship between their body and brain and their emotions and thinking abilities to the brain. And it seems to provide enormous vitality. That's why I call the book Moving to Life, you know, Near Movement for Lifelong Vitality, because as I was writing the book and I was writing it to the co-author, a wonderful guy, Hal in Bennett, and he said to me, so what, what's a, 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 behind or beyond, you know, the new connections and the vitality? I said, 
I don't know that there is any beyond. This is it. This is life. You do it. You are. You become. You live. You become more alive. This is what we're supposed to do. The human brain is do that throughout life. So there's something that happens with repetition that has us patterning the neural pathways in a particular groove that disallows this awakening or it, the switch to go on. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, let, let me first of all say something that I, I think is very important to first of all say before I go into what I'm going to say next. We have to have habits. We need to create habitual, automatic functioning or we won't be able to function at all. So just think of very simple stuff. You go like, oh, my God, I forgot to buy milk. You get up, you take, you know, the car keys, you go into your car, you turn the car on, you get to the grocery store, you get out of the, et cetera, et cetera. Of course, you have to be aware enough and notice where the steps are. And, but a big portion of your activity is automatic or semi-automatic. Correct. And that is actually important. Because imagine if, we woke up every morning and had to learn everything from scratch. I mean, we would never be able to live or do anything, right? So we spend enormous amount of time and, and very complex, rich process from actually before birth, but let's just take it from birth on. And, and over a period of, in today's world, easily 20, 25 years before there is the basic maturation of the system because there's so much we need to learn. And 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 the uh, uh, and we 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 don't have twenty five years every morning, right? So <laughs> automation and habituation is very important. The problem is how we do the habituation and what we do while we, you know, around the same time that we habituate. And the 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 reason I think that habituation and autom automatization of action is a problem is because in a lot of uh, places in our culture, in the way schooling is done, is that once we arrive at a certain level of capability or an answer, we, we, we sort of abandon the process. I mean, you're like, okay, I can do it, done. And then just do it again and again and again. And there is not usually much value or encouragement to what I call reopen the conversation. That means, let's say that I figured out how to, to do something in, a, a, in school, like in math. Or in, that's great, but that there is high value on either questioning what I do or moving to the next level or experimenting with variations around, you know, and discovering more possibilities. The, the, the brain would love be very efficient. It knows how to go to sleep, how to get up, how to make a living, how to have a relationship, and, and, and so on and so forth. And, and when we do that, and the, we keep repeating ourselves over and over and over again, what we do is we groove the existing patterns deeper, but there is an additional brain change that happens, and that's what I call negative brain change, because not all brain change necessarily is positive. So while we go more deeply the existing patterns, that's fine. If we don't allow enough freedom and variability, 
what tends to happen is that the, you know, surrounding connections that have not been uh, assigned as, as clearly to a specific uh, uh, task or configuration or pattern, but that they're there because I have to back up a little bit. When we learn something new, lots and lots and lots and lots of new connections, synapses, it's called synapses, are formed in the brain. We don't use all of them. At a certain point, there's a, what I, it, I believe it's always spontaneous, but there's an integration that allows us to succeed, to execute something recognizable. Either say a word in a way that somebody understands us, or a child that's when we learn language, or, or, or anything you want to think about. Those kind of free-floating connections, they kind of like, some of them dissipate because they're not used, but they're sort of hanging out there. And the brain itself has an inclination, it's kind of at the ready to create new connections for a new task or a new challenge. But if we just keep repeating ourselves over and over and over again, those hang out, hanging out, what I call hanging out connections, and start disappearing. They, they literally, they have no use, so they, they, they disappear. But also, the actual inclination of the brain to form new connections goes down. That's my learning switch, you know, um, essential. So, so that also very much describes the typical process of aging. People get really grooved in, but they're not just really grooved in and they get kind of more rigid and more kind of less differentiated, less agile. It really gets harder and harder to learn. And that's the part that doesn't have to be that way. It's not like because you're 10 years older, it should be that much harder to learn. It's because you used your brain in a way that shut down its inclination to learn and the underlying biochemical processes that, that, it has to go with learning. And again, that's where, where my work lives. That's where the magic lives. That's where the remarkable, you know, surprises of what we as humans can accomplish and sometimes in a really a short period of time once we turn the tide again and have a learning, vibrant, what's next kind of brain. When you're speaking about this, something came to mind about the possible power of making mistakes. Like I think as we mature and get older, we're less, we're wanting to not repeat things to make mistakes, perhaps through our experiences, more of a psychological, emotional point of view. But then what's the power in making those mistakes in the brain, what happens when we do make mistakes? Is there a powerful force that happens that is positive for us? First of all, thank you for this question. Huge, huge. So the brain is an information system. It's not a mechanical system. So it's not like, you know, I have a glass of water right now in front of me and if I touch it lightly and try to slide it away from me, if I use a little bit of, force, not enough force, right, it's not going to move. If I use more force, it's going to move. That's a mechanical characteristic. And, uh, uh, you know, so using more force or power intensity oftentimes gives people more outcome, right? Mm. When we come to the brain, it's not like that. It's actually the opposite. The 
what does it mean an information system? So there are a few things to, to, to define it very simply. One is it's a system that puts order in the disorder. Uh, it makes sense out of the nonsense. So you take bones and muscles and skin and internal organs and blood vessels and the whole human body, and then the brain is what gets us to be able to organize, to move ourselves in predictable ways that give us the predictable outcome. Like, I want to, you know, get up and go to the door. I, and there are many ways to do it. I can stand up and walk. I can walk forward. I can walk backwards. I can walk sideways. I can sit on my tush and hop. I can roll on, you know, from belly to back, belly to back and get to the door. I, I can crawl on all fours. I, I mean, I can, you know, stand on my, you do, do flips and get to the door. <laughs> so so the, 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 there's like infinite, actually, if we look at small variations, there are infinite number of ways to get from point A to point B. And the brain puts the, those bones and muscles and, you know, whatever, the structure into action. What gives the brain the information is not just the stimulation. Actually, stimulation alone is not a very... It's not going to work very well. I mean, I've worked with people who had stroke and, you know, they lose uh, some of the brain, uh, you know, area that, let's say, controls the arm. And because they lost a lot of connections and a lot of differentiation, the arm is very spastic. That means the muscles are very tight. And when they want to move the arm, they, uh, let's say, reach out with their hands, what they get is more tightness because the brain doesn't have the subtlety that it developed over, over many, many years. So... And the more you stimulate that person emotionally or work harder to try to move the arm, you get a stiffer and tighter arm. So you get the opposite of what you're looking for. In the, so that's just an example how more intensity can actually make us less skillful and less intelligent. Because what the brain needs to have the stimulation become information, that means something it can do something with is the perception of a difference. So if, so for instance, when I, when I, and we have now, we have it also on video and documented, and oh my God. I mean, I, we worked, uh, for example, with a guy, 57 year old, head stroke, uh, six or so years later, he was discharged uh, six years before he came to us from rehab. He had a, what's called ischemic, or ischemic, I call it ischemic stroke on the left side, so he was also had, uh, partially aphasic, had a hard time talking, and he had, not only he had no control of his right arm, he had no sensation in the right arm. And in the first week with us, after just, I don't know, maybe four sessions, I, I, I can check it, but very few sessions, I wanted to know what's happening, so I touched his right arm and near the shoulder. I said, can you feel this? And, you know, he's kind of a little awkward way of talking. He said, yeah. And I said, okay. And I moved a little less, and, I, and he said, yeah. And I moved. And then I said, have you felt the arm since um, after the stroke? He said, no. I said, did you feel it after you were done in rehab? He said, no. I said, when did you start feeling it? And he said, now. <laughs> wow. And I was like. Okay. <laughs> That's huge. It, of course it's huge because what you can't feel, you can't control. There's no information to the brain altogether. It doesn't matter how much it's tight or not tight. It just that doesn't exist. Well, so, also, also the fact that he went to rehab 
and oh, that didn't work. Oh, I, we we are we. I have a colleague, two colleagues. One is Dr. Martha Herbert from Harvard, and another one is Dr. Neil Sharp, originally from England. And we're working on. We have to finish a, a research proposal because I really strongly feel, and so does Martha now. That has, she wrote the book, The Autism Revolution, and she's taken my training, and we're collaborating now. I mean, rehab. We have to rehab, rehab. You mm. know, it's really based on assumptions, conscious and unconscious, that that belong to a hundred years ago. So it's a lot better than nothing. You know, rehabilitation is a very young field. You know, people didn't think you can rehab people, but but it's time to bring it to the twenty first century, and we get outcomes with people that are. Because the brain, once it can reconfigure the body, it can reconnect to it, feel things, feel what's going on, it can actually do amazing things. It can, in rehab, primarily, people try to make people perform what they lost. It doesn't work like that. You have to rebuild, I mean, you have to take a path that allows the brain to gradually remap all those parts in the body. You can't just do, like a baby that is not born doing it either. It takes millions of permutations until they get to a certain level that everybody recognizes they can do something. So so that's um, the brain is an information system. And the more I think people will understand that and what it means and what it takes to provide the brain the condition where the brain becomes better and better at perceiving differences, at generating information, it will work with the information. I have never had a person, and I'm going to come back to the mistakes in a minute. I haven't forgotten the question about mistakes. Is that that I have never had the experience of working with someone and, and providing them the conditions where they started feeling subtle differences, subtle changes, subtle this, subtle that, that they didn't get better. And I don't, I, I don't know how to fix people. I really, really, really don't know how to fix people. That's for me where the, you know, the science and the practice and the spirituality meet because I know that I can have a big impact on the process, but the outcome, the integration is not up to me. We don't control integration. It's a spontaneous event or as a friend of mine says, that's when you let God decide what to do, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. But, but we can have a huge say in it. So where does mistakes come? Because another way of saying mistakes is to say variation. And instead of thinking of it as mistakes, because mistakes are considered like a negative thing. Right. right? The word mistake are like mistake, like you took the wrong step, right? Mm. Something is wrong there. So instead of doing that, what you do is you say, let me do it in a variety of different ways. And one way to enter it through the idea of mistakes is, uh, it's in my book, the story, but I'll tell it briefly. I worked with one of the world's top cellists who had enormous amount of pain, and he was finding it harder and harder to play. Now, a wonderful cellist. From the repetitive movement. Repetitive movement in which, as a child, he was made to play correctly, and he was made to play correctly too quickly. Uh. So in the correct, and obviously he was successful, but it was very rigid. He had the way to play correctly. And in that correct way were certain mistakes. I mean, the brain is remarkable 
I worked with hundreds, you know, over my career with hundreds of musicians, primarily classical musicians, and many of them world-class musicians, not hundreds of them world-renowned because, you know, you don't have hundreds of those, but with orchestras and then solo play, soloists and really world-famous musicians. And what I saw over and over again was how much they were trained to play the right way and how they were able to play and produce beautiful music and have and performing in ways that were very, you know, that were very compromised in terms of effort, in terms of organization of the skeleton, the body. So the, the brain can get us a good outcome, but do it in a way that is not, that over time we're going to start having pain and aches and we're going to be stopped. And that's always where I was invited to, to work with musicians because they were amazing musicians and they were stopped. This musician was stopped or almost fully stopped because of pain and the pain was, but he was not going to get better as long as he was going to stay so rigid. And I had one session with him. I was, it was in Europe and I was there. Uh, and I, only, I could only see him one time. So... <laughs> So I didn't have much time. I had to get that brain to find a solution, really with a major shortcut. And I didn't know if it was going to work or not, but I just kind of like jumped into the deep end of the pool with him and said it's either going to work or not because I have only one session, right? Mm. So I, I had him play for me, a, a, you know, a piece, a sugar piece. And it was gorgeous. And then I said to him, okay, now, I said, this is beautiful. I said, now, I asked him to play, you know, the, the Bach part. It's a twinkle, twinkle little star. That's what people know it here in the United States. And he looked at me, and he was almost offended. You don't take usually one of the best, you know, cellists in the world, and you ask him to play twinkle, twinkle, <laughs> little star. So that was a variation, by the way. Now, I didn't do it because I was trying to do a variation, but I was doing a variation. I had to. I had to, I had to have him play something simple, and you'll understand in a minute why. So, so I, I asked him to do it, and I, and I said, I said, I said to him, I calmed him down. And I said, I know you're a remarkable cellist. I know you can play anything. Would you mind just one time play for me, Twinkle Twinkle? So he did, and I said that was perfect. Of course, <laughs> you know, even I could probably play Twinkle Twinkle. After a few, half an hour on a, on a cello, even though I don't know how to play the cello. So then I said to him, and now I said, could you please play it for me, but play it badly? And he was stumped. He just like, because ever since he was probably five or six years old, held a cello, you know, and played on a cello, he was told to play correctly. And he was shown what correctly he is. And obviously, he had very good teachers because he became a very good cellist, and he was also a very capable learner. So his whole being, his whole pattern of thought and emotion and intention, organization of intention is to do things correctly. So, so he, he just, he wasn't resisting me. He just, he just couldn't, he couldn't do it. He couldn't think it. So I said to him, do you teach little kids? He said, yes. I said, do they play badly sometimes? He said, yes. I said, can you think of one of them? He said, yes. I said, can you imitate him? So I was using his imagination, by the way, memory and imagination, which is one of my essentials. And I said, 
now can you play badly like that child? And he was relieved. He said, oh, yes, he could do that. <laughs> so he, he played badly, and I was also moving his shoulders and getting some movement in the ribcage and so on, so the brain will have the movement input, which I believe is essential for any real change and quick changes in movement. So, so, and he played badly. I saw after, you know, 10, 20 seconds, I stopped him, and I said, that was excellent. You played badly really well. <laughs> and you, you hear it, you're laughing. I mean, I meant it, by the way, very sincere, but boy, oh boy, does that scramble the brain. So then I said to him, hey, can you play badly for me again, just in a different way? And he was into it, and he thought about it, and whatever he did, I didn't even ask him to explain, and he played four times. Fifth time, he could not think about another bad way. I said, four times is enough. And I said, now just play the Schubert again. And he was pain-free. So the brain had a flood, and we're talking about millions and millions of new connections per second. It's estimated 1.8 million per second. So it's tens of millions per minute. Let's put it this way. And with that amount of flood of information, and in the context that is so familiar to him playing music, he just did it in a different way that excluded the pain. And at the same time, by the way, the quality of the playing improved. So he was, he was darn good to begin with. But both he and I heard it was like pristine. So that's mistakes. But you can call it variations. And you can also call it play. But it's a systematic, intentional, you know, basically organized play, right? But that's what children do. Children that don't play don't grow, don't evolve. And by the way, infants that don't have a lot of random movement, not organized movement, people try to get little babies to do things from the start, you know, like tummy time and all this. Really bad idea. Distorts the process. They're not supposed to have yet committed organized movement. They're supposed to get all this like flood and then discover that when they do it a certain way, they can touch something or discover that they make a certain sound, mother shows up, right? I mean, it, it's supposed to be a process of enormous amount of permutation. Not hectic, but just like free. And so mistakes, what you call mistakes, is one of the, the easiest ways to wake up the brain and get it going because you generate differences for the brain. You do things. Now, when everybody now says, oh, you have to do different things, go learn Italian, it's good for the brain, it's anti-aging. Absolutely. But actually more potent than that, you learn Italian, learn anything. Dance, you know, ballroom dancing, all of that is fantastic. But you can also learn, go and do those things and be still grooved into your very deep habit. The way to really get the brain to wake up is in what you already do, start putting variation. That's when it, you really start freeing up your nervous system. So you're saying just in the daily life. Exactly. You're, you're about to talk to your spouse or to your child or your teenage, and, you know, they left their clothes on the floor again or, I don't know, whatever. And you can, we sort of can, we know already how the, we're going to sound and we have the 
same feeling in our gut that we get. It's like, oh, you know, he doesn't love me. He doesn't do what I ask him. He leaves his pants on the floor. I don't know, whatever, right? And at that moment, we can go like, hey, I've done that a million times. Is there a different way to respond? Can I just kind of make a mistake in how I respond or innovate a little bit? One way to innovate is actually not to respond, especially if you don't have an idea. But another one is to come and be really loving. Or another one is to put their pants on and go dance down the hall with it and have them kind of go like that and say, and you say I, I'm just going to own this pants. And any pants I find on the floor are going to become mine. I mean, whatever. I, I just, anything. Because it, it, it not, does, doesn't just change and wake your brain. It wakes up the brain of the other person and it provides an opportunity for a different interaction quality. This yeah. is the so, cure for relationships. <laughs> oh, this is hugely so. You know, my favorite example of it is teenagers. You know how we blame teenagers? They, they, you know, you go and you tell them, I don't know, do your homework or help me with, with the dishes or I, I don't know, whatever it is, right? And they roll their eyes. <laughs> you know, and all of us adults feel like, oh, those teenagers, I can't wait for those years to pass. <laughs> And one day, I had a variation in my thinking, and I thought, actually, they have a really good reason to roll their eyes, because they know exactly what we're going to say, how we're going to sound, what we're gonna, how we're going to threaten them if we're going to threaten them. They just know what to expect, and what they're expecting, they don't like for a good reason, because it's not very likable. And we give it to them. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 and even if it's okay, it's just a repetition of it. A healthy brain doesn't like a lot of the same thing over and over and over again. A healthy brain varies. You know, if you look into biological processes, if you look to how the muscles work, not two steps are the same one after the other. You get the same outcome. They... It look the same, but if you analyze which muscles work and how the brain put together the totality of the configuration to give the, the step, it changes from step to step. It actually changes from step to step. People don't know that. And when it doesn't change as much, people fatigue, the muscles fatigue, and that's also part of the aging. You know, when I work with people, they get a lot more energy. It's partly because the body and the brain start working in the way it was built to work, which is a lot more like bouncing the balls around in an organized way. In an intelligent, in a very potent, the brain is the most potent organ we have in the body. So, yeah. So when there's an interruption, for example, with an injury or an accident, then what happens? Well, a lot of things happen. So do you want to be more specific in your question or should I just dive in? Well, I've, I've got some examples where someone I know had a head injury and all of a sudden had to learn how to move and talk and basically begin from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, or, you know, if someone hurts their leg and they can't walk or something like that, where okay. there's been an interruption in the natural yeah. um, pattern yeah. and the body cannot move in the way that it used to 
but is moving at a disadvantage somehow. Okay. So I want to separate the two examples. When there is direct assault on the brain, which is the, you know, the CEO of the body and all of what we do, uh, uh, you know, it's kind of, if you think about a car, so if you have the one tire that that is lost some air, maybe it will keep driving, but a little dangerous and clumsy, and if it loses air completely, you have to really stop. But the, the, it's not a great example, but I want to give it anyway. And, and, uh, but but the, the, there is still integrity of the whole system, and you just need to change the tire, right? But if you really, the engine gets uh, some, you know, burns something important part, so the computer in the engine doesn't work or something like that, your tires can be perfect and your car can be perfect and there can be full gasoline, but it ain't going anywhere. Right. So... So the brain, when the brain itself gets injured, I mean, there are very potent ways to help the brain heal. And that is my work. And a lot of the work, because I think it's degrees of healing. You know, a brain that, that is doing the same thing over and over again for 50, 60, 70 years and with little variation, it's not necessarily a very healthy brain, by the way. It's not functioning as if it's full potency in health, but it's, it's a... But if you have direct assault on the brain, a massive, abrupt assault on the brain, it stops everything, and the brain itself needs to be brought to the place where it can start doing, you know, making sense out of stuff and putting order in the disorder because it can't. So I won't talk about, I mean, I'll talk about direct brain damage or assault in a minute, but if you have back injury or leg injury or a break or something like that, First of all, the brain organizes for you to keep functioning despite the injury. So, so, so if you think of where you must have seen that when a dog who has four legs, right, hurts one leg, they pick up that leg and walk on three legs. Right. That's the brain. It can do that. So it protects the leg. It waits for you to heal and, 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 and the dog, if it's a long term and it took a long time to put back the leg, it might create some distortions in the way the dog moves and over time maybe in the shape of the skeleton. There can be long term consequences if you don't help reintegrate the leg and connect it to the rest of the body and the brain. But it's a very different kind of thing. What happens for most humans is the injury, and again, I'm talking about your more middle-of-the-road injury, right? Something that heals anywhere between a week or two to three months, right? What happens is the brain forms a, a, the brain forms a, a, a new, new configuration. It, get, it gets into a heightened plasticity, by the way. It, 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 it is geared into learning again, also after brain damage. Very intensified a, Plasticity, that means a tendency to form new connections, is heightened hugely. And, <clears throat> and it figures out how to do it. And sometimes it means that your right shoulder is going to go up to your ear to do it, and you're, you're twisting your spine in a weird way a little bit. And, you know, once you're healed, we are very powerful habit-forming creatures. So once we are healed, we tend to continue moving the way we figured to move while the injury was still active and we had to protect ourselves. 
And then we get other problems due to the distortions that we had to create in those two weeks or three months. We, we form habits fast. I mean, we're a very powerful habit-forming machine. So what I do with my work is, first of all, a, 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 if somebody comes to me after they heal from the injury, I can see what they've done to function while they were injured, which is a great thing, but then it's time to get out of that and go back into a more both differentiated and better integrated way of moving and, and, and thinking of the self and feeling safe again, feel stable on their feet and all that kind of stuff. But another part in, in when we get uh, injured is that, well, I think maybe that's enough to talk about that because I want to say a few things about the brain. So, but when we get injured, oh yeah, while we are immediately while we're injured, there is a way to work with people. So if somebody, you know, fell, got some bruises, they hurt a little bit the back, didn't break anything. There is a way, or even if there's a break, there's a way to work with a person so that the brain does not create those extreme protections and you make sure that the brain doesn't dissociate fully from the hurt area because it creates dissociation, it retracts connections. When there's pain, there is retraction of connections because the brain says, well, not useful, we're not going to be connected to that, we're not going to move that. And so, for instance, my father broke his leg and pretty lower, like pretty badly. And unfortunately, they set it the first time. And after a couple, three weeks, they realized they set it badly. So they had to re-break it and reset it. He was in his 60s at the time. Mm. And and he lives in Israel and I live here. So he called me, I mean, here meaning the United States. And he called me up and he said, uh, if I came to you, could you do the equivalent of physical therapy? I said, in there, I don't do physical therapy. I mean, I actually really don't do, even though, you know, physical therapy can be very useful and they're wonderful physical therapists. I said, I do something very different. I said, okay, okay, I know, I know. Can you work with me? I said, sure. <laughs> he, he had a full leg cast. He was on crutches. And so I had asked to his toes of the leg. But then you start thinking brain, right? Or I start thinking brain. So the first, first of all, I didn't even touch his legs because when a leg is broken, if you even take the person's head, you will see that the head moves over one leg a lot more readily than the other because the brain already knows to not put weight on that leg. So there's a, a, a but then if, a, when I work really, really gentle and the person is lying down, the defenses are not necessary. So I could get the head and spine to move as if both legs were fine. I call it the as-if approach. And then the pelvis, the same thing. You, you press on the pelvis, the person lies on their back. The pelvis will roll over more easily towards the leg that's not hurt because it doesn't want to shift. It's not the pelvis, but the brain does not want to shift weight over to the broken leg. But if it's done really gently, guess what? It will do it. And then I worked on the leg that was, you know, not broken, didn't have a cast. Because I know that the brain is also has connection between the right side and the left side. So if I really work and get that leg to move really easily, and also it's the leg that's working harder, so I make sure it's okay, 
then the brain starts moving the information to the other leg. And I can use the person's imagination. I even did it with a woman, a wonderful gal, she's herself a professional, a few weeks ago that couldn't, one foot really hurt, and it was sort of a chronic condition and a medical condition. So I, I worked on I did whatever I did, and then I got to the leg. I worked on the leg that was not problematic, and I worked. And and then, as I worked on the leg that was not problematic, I asked her to imagine that I am actually touching the other leg. I didn't even touch the other leg because it had so much pain and inflammation. I wasn't going to irritate it. So I, I, I worked on the leg that was not painful, but I told her to imagine I'm working on that leg that's painful. And when I was done, the leg didn't hurt anymore. And I'm talking about you know, seven minutes, I, I mean, do, or five minutes doing the imagination. I, the whole lesson is about 25 minutes. So that's the, the way wow. we, for healing, it's a, it's a completely different universe. It's like, in my world, the, the person's brain becomes my ally. And I'm using the brain's own qualities and own way of working to to steer it in the direction that is most oops, sorry the, the headpiece just fell out uh, so they, to, to move it to the, 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 the to, to take advantage of it whereas if I try to work the leg that's painful and that's what happened to her she actually went and she had I think a chiropractic treatment and usually he, he, he's very helpful but this time he decided to work directly on the leg and she was in an enormous amount of pain so, you know, I'm like, I'm not touching that leg, but I'm <laughs> touching that leg via her brain. Because when she imagines it, I mean, hello, we're not creating actual friction, right? Right. Yeah, so that's, uh, that's kind of like some of what we do. And, and there are essentials in my work that people can apply, like you said, I liked it, but you said it, in everyday life. So, you know, one of them, you know, my, my first essential is movement, but with attention. Attention to what you feel as you move. Because when you pay attention to what you feel as you move, you literally flood your brain with new information. And there's research that shows that when we move automatically, we don't get new connections, new mapping in the brain, between the body and the brain, right? What I talked about in the beginning of the interview. But when we pay attention, there is there are millions of new connections that form per minute. It's actually close to 100 million, at least in children, but also in adults. I mean, the, the change is very, very rapid. And so, so you can take any movement. Folding your, your shirts after you washed them and took them out of the dryer, the way you bend to take clothes out of the dryer. And then you can do a little variation. Take, and it doesn't take a lot of time. You know, it's, it's like you say, oh, I'll bend this way, I'll bend that way, I'll bend, and then, and then just bend. You go to the gym. You walk on that treadmill machine. Put a really slow speed so that you can feel what you do. You can feel, for instance, the contact of your feet, in, you know, in the shoe moving from heel to toe. You can feel, you can, and then you can start, or what you feel in your spine, or what you feel in your shoulders. And then, but just do it, for, don't obsess, you just do it for a few seconds and then just walk and immediately you'll feel different. Many people feel immediately lighter or, or taller or the breath opens, you know, gets freer. And, uh, and then you can introduce variation. Slow is a very important essential because fast we can only do what, what we already know. Not because 
we're stubborn is because that's how the brain is built. The autom- you know, when we do more grooving in, more the myelination, it makes it that we can do things faster, which is important to be able to move fast, and, and it's the habit. So when we move or act fast, the, the default is always our strongest habit. And it needs to be this way because it's safe, because those habits have gotten us to be alive now doing something fast. But if we want to do something new and we don't want to be hijacked by our powerful habits, we have to slow down. And it's really, really powerful because also when we slow down, we get a chance to feel, what, to, feel to feel ourselves, to notice, to notice ourselves, to notice around us. And remember, information for the brain is the perception of differences. Reduction of intensity, of effort. Another powerful, powerful way. Because the less intensity in the stimulus, the more we can feel fine changes, fine differences. So it's all about the information, the amount of information that's coming through. Absolutely. So so we are... Listening to Anat Baniel, founder of Anat Baniel Method, and you are tuned in to Ultrasounds, WMNF Tampa 88.5 FM. And I'm thinking this would be a great time to perhaps take everyone through an exercise. Can we do something where the listeners can actually follow your voice and experience? Oh, absolutely. What? Absolutely. You tell me, do you want a standing lesson? Or do you want a sitting lesson? I think uh, sitting because it's that time of night (laughs) (laughs) over here. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. But don't do it if you're driving. I mean, (laughs) please uh, do it uh, where you can sit. But not if you're driving. And they can (laughs) they can listen to the podcast. Yes, exactly, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, because I'm going to ask you to pay attention to yourself and to move in different directions. So I don't, I, you can't do it while you're driving. <laughs> you, can, you can do it if you're sitting next to the driver, but not the driver. So I'm going to ask you to, and I'm, uh, and uh, Ilov, if you don't mind, do it too. And then maybe you can ask me questions or make, you know, if you don't understand something or. Okay. So, so sit at the edge of the chair. Okay. Uh, with your knees spread and your feet spread and your knees also spread over your feet comfortably, right? And if you can have your feet flat on the floor, fine. Uh, if not, just stay in your shoes, but it's better flat so you can feel the floor uh, with it, or at least flat shoes. And now lean on your, um, but no, just put both hands on your knees and you're sitting at the edge of the chair. So take a few seconds to feel how you're sitting. You, the first thing that's usually easy to feel is the, the, the pressure on your sit bones, right, on your, on your buttocks, on your, the bottom of your pelvis. And feel if the right side and the left side feel the same or maybe they're a little different. Nothing is wrong or right. The thing to do is, is actually to feel. So we're training our ability to feel. The more our brain knows to feel, the more it can learn the more we become intelligent. So feel, you know, the contact with the chair. And now, um, very, and the hands on on the, and feel your spine, just 
see if you can sort of locate your spine in your back, more or less. And just feel the length of the spine from the tailbone all the way through to the base of your head. And and then um, just very gently, turn your head gently. So I'm going to ask you to move slowly, and I'm going to ask you to move gently, only at the range that is really comfortable. So these are two essentials right there, and then I'm going to ask you to pay attention to what you feel, and I'll guide you to do that. So very, very gently, just turn your head to the left and bring it back to the middle. I'm doing the lesson with all of you guys, so I can pace it too. And then very gently turn your head to the left and see without stretching, it's absolutely not stretching, it's just it's a range of real comfort and ease. Where, what do you see? I don't know if you're looking at a wall or something. Just look. So you, you have a baseline of, of the, the, the twist or the range of turn uh, when you do it comfortably. And now just turn your head comfortably to the right and bring it back to the middle. And notice if the right feels different than the left. For most people, it does. And then again, turn the head to the right and bring it back to the middle. And now lean on your hand, your left hand, on the seat of the chair behind you. And it's important that you put some weight onto the right arm and hand. Uh, uh, There's a reason for it. Never mind right now. And now lift your left arm in the air and the elbow and let, let the elbow sort of hang down and Place your chin on top of the back of your right hand. So you bring the right hand, the back of the right hand towards your chin. You let the elbow, you know, rest kind of like hang. So you're not holding the elbow up in the air. So you don't have extra effort there. And you you lean your chin a little bit on the hand. So it's kind of like you're slouched a little bit and you're leaning on your left arm. And now... Take your arm, your head, your chin, your shoulders, everything together very gently and turn it to the left. And also look with your eyes to the left as you, you move like that, you know, let the eyes be open and just look around yourself as you twist yourself as, you know, the shoulder, the head and the arm like one unit, like they've been glued together. And when, and come back to the middle each time and then when you twist, Notice if you feel any movement in your spine and in your ribcage. Just pay attention to that. And the next time, maybe even be more detailed. Feel the, feel the movement on the right side of your rib and feel the movement, or see if you can feel the movement on the left side of your rib or the ribs on the left side, to say it more accurately. And let's do it one more time and see if you can sense a shift in weight on your pelvis that maybe, maybe more of the weight comes over to your left hip, your left side of your pelvis. Now, it doesn't have to be that way. Maybe you do the movement differently. So it's just to get your attention. And one more movement, and notice if there's a shift in pressure on the soles of the feet where one foot gets more pressure than the other. And for you, which foot might that be? And leave that alone. Come back to make sure you're sitting at the edge of the chair. Put your hands on top of your knees again and look forward. And now feel how you sit. 
So for me, for example, at this moment, my back feels taller without trying to be taller. It's actually easy also to be taller, but popped up. Now, maybe you feel it, maybe you don't. I'm talking about my, what I feel, the changes I feel. Silly feet, now the contact with the chair is clearer through one button compared to the other, or one seat bone compared to the other. Notice if one leg maybe feels larger, or the knee feels a little higher up in the air, or one shoulder might feel lower, or one eye might feel more open, or any other change. Whatever you may feel, or if you don't feel any change, or very little, don't worry. Your brain is working. And up. Put your hand again, the left one, the same side. We're not doing the other side. We're doing the same side. You lean on the left hand on the back of the chair. I mean, on the seat of the chair, but in the back part. Again, you bring the right hand towards the chin. You lean your chin on the back of your right hand. And now you, you twist yourself over to the left and you stay twisted. And in this position, you stay twisted, but you just move your eyes right and left. You can do it with the eyes open, or you can do it with the eyes closed, right and left like this. And now come back to the middle, but still have the chin on the back of the hand. And now every time you turn to the left, look further with your eyes to the left. And notice if by any chance that... You find yourself, when you move the eyes also to the left on purpose, that you twist a little further without making more effort. Again, if you don't, not to worry. And come back to the middle. And now, when you twist to the left, look with your eyes to the right. And then bring everything to the middle. And again, when you twist to the left, look with your eyes to the right. Many people think they do it and they don't do it because it's very novel. So once again, you know, come to the middle and fix your eyes on something in front of you. And now keep that gaze on in front of you and twist yourself to the left. Then you are going to move the eyes and the head in opposite direction. So again, twist to the left and keep staring at something in front of you and come to the middle. And now see one time actively if you can actually twist to the left and move the eyes actively to the right and back to the middle. And now. Again, twist everything to the left, but look with the eyes to the left and feel if your twist has become, you know, bigger. And I'll stop it and rest. And we're going to do one more movement. And so twist, lean on your left hand behind you, put the chin on top of the back of your right hand, make sure that your right elbow is hanging down. Twist yourself to the left to wherever it's easy. Stay twisted. And now, press on your right foot and lift a little bit the right hip. So more weight goes to the left hip. And then do the opposite, the opposite way. Lift the left hip and bring more weight onto the right one. And rock your pelvis like that. As you're twisted, rock your pelvis. Remember the whole thing of mapping? Most people have very, very... A, a missing mapping in their, of their pelvis to their brain. That's one of the reasons that so many people can't move as well as they want. So rock your pelvis right and left like that. A few times, easy. Just to think you're dancing or something. And then bring yourself back to the middle. And now again, twist everything to the left. And notice if you're starting to see closer to seeing behind you. 
without trying. Harder. And now just sit at the edge of the chair, put both hands on top of your knees. First of all, feel the difference, if you can feel the difference between the whole right side and the left side. The shoulder, is one shoulder lower? Which is one butter getting more weight? Is one foot feeling flatter on the floor? Is one side of the face feels fuller, longer, freer, more relaxed? Some people sometimes say, feel if you're sitting taller without trying. That means there's no more. The weight on the pelvis is more forward on the sitting bones rather than being backwards. And now, in this position, just with the hands on the knees, twist yourself to the left and feel how you're twisting. And notice if you're twisting differently than before. Feel if more of your spine is participating, your rib cage, your pelvis, your legs. And now stop that. And now one time twist to the right and notice if it's different. For me, the right is also better than before, but the left is a whole lot more better. Wow. <laughs> Can you feel the difference? Oh, my goodness. That is amazing, amazing. Like it's, yeah, night, it's night and day, literally. Yes. I think the first time I turned, I could turn my head and it was to about the level of my shoulder, twisting mm-hmm. about that far. Mm-hmm. And then... I ended up twisting all the way around and seeing behind me. And the important thing is you didn't try harder. Probably you tried, you, it was less effort even. Totally. It, it's the organization. The brain says she wants to turn around or we are turning around, right? We're turning the head to the left. But it had what to work with, how to organize it so that turning to the left was done in a way that so much more harmonious with the structure of the body that all of a sudden, with, with less effort, you turn further. And that's what this work is about. Anything, any action, any it's learning, it's how to give the brain the conditions to generate information that it could use to either do things we already do better, like the turning around, or learn completely new things. So now, if you want to learn Italian, for example, so we want to do anti-aging and we go to learn Italian or Spanish or Chinese or whatever language we want. How do we go about learning a new language? How about using the essentials for learning a language? I work with children that can't talk. I don't do speech therapy. I'm not trained as a speech therapy. But I know what gives the brain an opportunity to figure out anything. Learning is learning is learning is learning. It's always from not there to yes there by approximation. So how does the brain get that? So, so if a child, uh, for, for instance, say, a, 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 the question is if they can't hear, if they can't hear differences in sound, they're not going to be able to learn to talk. You know, how do, how do I get so I, 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 I amplify, the, amplify the differences in sound and all of a sudden they are able to but I don't try to teach them words. I never taught a child that I helped learn to talk. I never taught them words. I got them to perceive differences in sounds. I got them to play around with sounds, but I didn't just do sounds. I did it with movement. I did it with mapping of the chest and the, you know, the whole neck, the whole breathing, the whole thing. So they have freedom there and they, 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 the brain can move things around. The tongue, sometimes the tongue is not 
moving in, in, in sufficient freedom to, you know, whatever it is. I work with a young woman, there's a video, there's a, you know, a YouTube on, uh, oh, we got her also four months after the stop. Usually they, three months or so, the rehab is finished because there's no more pro- progress. And she couldn't talk. She's a favorite. I mean, she really she couldn't talk. And she couldn't think also. So she couldn't retrieve the words. She couldn't, uh, do the, you know, produce addiction. And she couldn't think very well. You know, the whole thing. It was really pretty devastating. Beautiful young woman. And, and, and you know, they, they were doing with her speech therapy and asking her to try to say the word orange. I think it was the word orange like hundreds of times a day. Now, talk about grooving in. How many times does it take for you to try and say the word orange and fail to learn how to fail really, really well? So with my students, if they're about to fail, I tell them to not do it because I don't want... There's a difference between variations to a repeated failure. Mm. Do you you understand the difference? Yes. I can ask them to do it badly one way, another way, third way, fourth way, fifth way, and then just ask them to do it. But then it's not badly. I'm just asking them to do something in different ways. But if somebody tries to say and pronounce the word and they fail, and then they try again, it takes two repetitions for the brain to anticipate to get the same outcome the third time. Wow. That's That's All of us walk around and say, oh, I'm not good at that. Or we are asked to do something, whatever it is, and we get this anxiety in the pit of our stomach. And we learned it when we were two or when we were six or when we were 20. It didn't take long. It didn't take long. And if we're not trained to do well with not succeeding, if it's really like we're supposed to succeed, then it's really devastating for the system. So so we worked with her. And if you watch, her name is Tessa. If you go to an Adbaniel method on YouTube and Tessa, you... Her, her boyfriend, she's now getting married. She's taken the practitioner training program. She, it's quite remarkable. Now, is she perfect in terms of the right arm is functioning but not fully? I wish we had gotten her right after the, 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 the stroke because we would have been able to accomplish a lot more because all those very prof- deep grooving in of the, you know, limitations wouldn't have been able to catch. But, but she's, it's, it's night and day. She couldn't feel anything on her right side except pain. And, and she, was, she could barely walk. She had a cane. Her arm was off. And you see her walking in a high heel. You know. <laughs> <laughs> it's just stunning. And, and she got, she got her life and, and, and hope and joy and off. And imagine if she can do it. I say just, you know... The middle of the way, you know, struggling human beings. I mean, we can we can do better, a lot better. So, for people that would like to find out more about your work and uh, learn about the Anat Banyel method, where do they go? Oh, yeah. So the, the the first place, the easy place to go is to my website, which is, you know, www.anatbanielmethod.com, A-N-A-T-B-A-N-I-E-L method.com. Or just Google Anat Baniel, and of course it will pop up. 
for for reading the book uh, Moving to Life, Neuro Movement for Lifelong Vitality is a wonderful, uh, you know, place to read about the essentials and everything and understand more the, the brain theory behind the, the method itself, the practice. Those of you who work with or have children with special needs, the, the, the book Kids Beyond Limits is, uh, I think, a really wonderful book, and it got a forward from Dr. Michael Merzenich that is the, you know, the neuroscientist that did the research, the initial that showed that adult brains can change and change very, very powerfully. And he just loves my essentials and the book. And he wrote, and also Norman Deutsch, who wrote the book, The Brain That Changes Itself and The Brain's Way of Healing. He wrote forward to, an introduction to the book, forward is Mike Merzenich. Uh, he watched me work for five years with children and wrote about the work in his book, um, uh, The Brain's Way of Healing. So these are, this is a slightly bigger commitment, but, you know, it's, it's uh, their paper co- cover. And you can read it one or two, three chapters of each book in, on, from my website, if you like. So, so that's that. And I teach workshops. Uh, for this year, I've got uh, three workshops left, one in California. Uh, Four. Uh, one this weekend that I'm doing in, uh, near Santa Barbara in Ventura, one day for parents and professionals working with children with special needs and and for parents of children with special needs and, and, and uh, one in uh, Santa Cruz uh, uh, later next month uh, on vitality and anti-aging. And then I'm doing two workshops for Eileen Fisher for her Eileen Fisher Learning Lab. And one is one day about the children's special needs, and the other one is for adults, again, on vitality, basically, and and mobility and pain relief and this kind of stuff. So, so there are workshops, and then we're opening. I'm very excited about that. We're opening a practitioner training program. We open them roughly once every two years. So we graduated our most recent training. It was the end of, it was early June, I think. And we're opening a training in October, end October, and people can find can go, you know, Anadbaniel Training website dot com or through the main website, and you know can find us a lot more and can talk. We actually have a live person you can talk with. She's amazing. She's a practitioner, but she's also our enrollment person, and. Um, uh, and there's lots of videos on YouTube, especially on the work with children. You know, short video, video te- videos that show uh, uh, some of the outcomes of different conditions, anywhere from cerebral palsy to torticollis to, of course, autism and any any one of those things. So I think, and then your podcast, that's a great place. And you have videos for people that they can uh, actually, yeah, all the specific videos. So for people that have a sore back or scoliosis, what are some of the others? Oh, yeah. So I have a program that is a four-part program. You don't have to buy all the four parts, but it's called Neural Movement for Whole Brain Body Fitness. And it's the first one is six, each lesson is about 30, 35 minutes long. And each set, each uh, sub-program has six of those lessons. And the first one is simply called Whole Body Fitness uh, be- because it's, um, I selected six lessons to address six 
main areas of the body to ensure to wake up the brain to those areas and to 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 start getting more mapping to you know to feeling this what I talked you know the Swiss cheese holes yes because I keep saying that over the years that you know I thought our suffering many of us think that in order that our suffering comes from our past so we look into the past to try and understand it and know it which I think is very important to do and and but somehow try to do something about what happened in the past what we have done positive or has happened to us negative or what we are ignorant about is what causes us the suffering today. So I, my understanding is that most of our suffering is basically based in ignorance. If we resume the process of differentiation and integration in the brain and learning and filling in those blanks and having getting a lot more freedom on all levels, movement, thought, emotion, creativity, we actually become a lot happier. You know, one of the main things that the adults tell us too, but the, all the parents of the children, and we work with hundreds of children by now, one of the very first things they say, my child is so much happier. And it's long before they can walk or long before their problems completely solved, but the process of getting more freedom and more options, it's, 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 the, it's an important part of our actual literal health, also metabolic health. So... So, so the first is the, the, the whole body, you know, fitness, neuromovement whole body fitness. And then after that, there is a, another set is the healthy dynamic sitting. The, the one is the, a, a, about breathing, and the fourth one is about balance. So that's one set that you can buy one or you can buy or four, I always, if you buy, take, get on, and you can get it streaming only or you can get it with DVD. Then the next one is, um, I have a, a neuro movement for healthy backs and for health, again, six lessons or healthy necks or a healthy scoliosis and pain relief. Healthy back scoliosis and pain relief. And they're all they're all great. And by the way, the lessons are different from program to program. I have a five day workshop that was filmed professionally, and it's called Vitality uh, Anti Aging Vitality and Well Being. I think that's the title. And we're going to come soon. If you're interested in the children specially, there's a five day workshop I did for parents with their children. It was remarkable. We had only 24 families because that's all we could take. And um, that's going to come uh, towards the end of uh, this month, September already. Beautiful. So yeah. And, that's, and there's some more stuff, but that I think covers the basics. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been enlightening, literally. <laughs> and thank you for your work. I really feel that it is giving so many people hope where they've lost hope. So after watching some of the videos on YouTube and, and witnessing for myself and just even doing this exercise tonight with you and having that breakthrough to know that there is possibility for us to do it with ease... That's so, so powerful. Thank you, thank you. Thank you, Elov. It was really, if I may say so, you're a wonderful interviewer. Really, <laughs> I really enjoyed, thank <laughs> you. enjoyed my conversation with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Much love and many, many blessings.
Thank you. And we've been speaking with Anat Baniel, founder of the Anat Baniel Method. And you can go to her website, anatbanielmethod.com and check out all of the amazing work that she's really doing to help people out of pain and overcome aches and increase strength and enhance mental clarity and creativity and ultimately joy. So very, very powerful stuff. We're very blessed that we were able to have a nut on the show tonight. You've been listening to Ultrasounds with DJ E-Love on WMNF Tampa. Peace and love until next week.